0: Welcome to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and Familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, I have three writers whose work spans the gamut of novels, short stories, and poetry. They're joining me today to discuss their contributions to the new short story anthology House of Haunts as well as their independent work. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Heather Doherty, Marie Lanza, and Samantha Underhill. Samantha, Marie, welcome to the show.
1: Thank Thank you. you.
2: Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining me on this 26th day of November 2023. It had been a while since I last had Heather on the show when we spoke about her amazing collection of short stories entitled Tales My Grandmother Told Me. So I was thrilled to hear from Heather again when she reached out and told me about the upcoming anthology House of Haunts. I was even more thrilled to learn about the caliber of authors involved and the scale of the collection, so I'm excited to have three of those talented authors on the show today.
1: Glad to be here.
0: Well, so the stories are set in an imposing three-story residence known as Hale House. The tone of the anthology is established through a poem and architectural drawings that enhance the imagination and project a sense of epistolary fiction. And to me, the drawings give the impression that the reader knows something the narrators of the stories don't want them to know, or are unaware that they know. What were you trying to evoke in the reader with the drawings, and where did the design for the house come from?
2: Well, the drawings to begin with were only for the authors. This was a way for them to be able to see where their room that they were writing about was in the house so that we didn't have people describing the house in different ways. And originally it was just graph paper and a pin drawing that I had done which I posted in the group we had so everybody could see it and see where their room was and who was next to them or above them. But then I decided that it would be really cool to put the drawings in the book so that people could see the house as they were going through it. Because, you know, fantasy books get really cool maps and stuff, but (sighs) horror books very often get cool stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to do that and I wasn't really sure how I was going to do that. But luckily... In the midst of the creation of this book, I happened to marry a guy who's quite handy with things like that. And he was nice enough to help me with that and make these drawings into, you know, the beautiful things that are actually included in the book. I wanted to put them in there because gothic horror is my favorite kind of horror. And the thing I always say about the horror I like and write is that the atmosphere is a character in itself and that's the thing about gothic horror is that the place where it is set is so important to the story it is its own character it is an important part of every story and i wanted to be able to put the readers in the house i wanted them to be able to flip back and and see where they were and imagine walking through you know from room to room and 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 knowing what was above them or below them or just outside the window So I think it was a pretty cool thing. And my husband, Josh, did an amazing job uh, making the drawings into the beautiful things you see in the book.
0: Absolutely. So a draftsman? Is he an architect himself?
2: He is not. He's quite tech handy. He's a technical writer for the government. Oh, And he's done a lot of manuals, diagrams, kind of things like that. So if he doesn't know how to do it, he can usually figure out how to do it. (laughs) And he figured it out pretty fast uh, and did a great job.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, Heather, I know you contributed a story to the collection. And as its editor, the collection is very much your baby, as it were. How long have you been planning and working on this project? And how did you curate the list of authors?
2: Well, I got it in my head last year, shortly after I finished Tales, my grandmother told me, actually, that I wanted to create an anthology. I wanted to be in charge of one to have the idea to put it all together to curate it. That was sort of my dream job. And I just sort of played with it in my head for a few months. And I actually just a little while ago was scrolling back through my messages with Samantha to see where I had asked her to be in the anthology because so, I didn't remember when I started it, but it was April. It was April of this year that I actually started moving forward with it. And the book came out in October. And let me tell you, six months is not the amount of time you should give yourself to do something like that.
3: <laughs>
2: there were a lot of really, really down to the wire moments with this book. But I knew I wanted to do an anthology. I figured I would start with what I knew best, which was haunted houses. But I didn't want to do kind of the same sort of haunted house anthology that everybody's done a million times. I wanted it to be a little bit different. And I had this kind of duh moment and thought, why don't we make it all the same haunted house, have rooms, assign each author a room, and have them write a story, give them freedom to do whatever they want in their room, but their room has to fit into the house and into the larger story of the history of Hale House. And originally, the book only had 12 rooms, 12 stories, 12 authors. And I had 10 authors picked out and I needed to fill the other two spots. And I just opened it up on Facebook. I said, who can write me a story set in a specific room? You know, send me a message if you're interested. And I had like 60 people send me messages. So then I thought, well, maybe that was not the best way to do that. Uh, So we came up with extra rooms. We went from 12 to 23. And I I was able to, you know, get in, I guess, 13 extra people. And, And I did choose authors that I knew that I had read their works. I knew that they were good writers, that they could write the kind of story that I wanted. Because when you do an anthology like this, you can't just have kind of an open call. People have to choose a room and write that room. And I couldn't have 12 kitchens and, you know, six bathrooms. So I did have to pick and choose the authors. Um, And then, of course, they got to choose their own rooms and do whatever they wanted with their rooms. But in my last few years in this community, I've made a lot of friends who are writers. And so I had a large pool to choose from. And in the end, having to tell some people not this time and yes to others was not fun. I don't like that part at all. But I think we ended up with a really excellent lineup of authors
0: and good on you for starting it off with ronald kelly
2: (laughs) right when i asked him i specifically said you know it's going to be a walk through this house the first place they're going to get to is the front porch
3: Mm. who
2: understands the importance of a big old southern front porch better Mm. than ronald kelly you know so i actually i actually asked him specifically to do that room for me and he agreed
0: awesome yeah Well, Samantha, as the author of the story entitled The Living Library of Hale House, it's understandable why a writer would be attracted to the theme of a library. However, beyond being merely rooms full of books, libraries are frequently featured as mysterious settings in detective and horror stories. What aspects of a library do you think can be effectively utilized in a good horror story? And which of these did you employ in your story?
1: Sure. I mean, you're right. Libraries are often featured. And and part of me, when Heather reached out and said, would you do this? I thought, you know, it might be too obvious to pick a library, but (laughs) I'm a professor and I couldn't help myself. I was like, I need the library. Mm -hmm. So when she said the library is still available, I I felt very lucky. But in general, I think libraries are just kind of wonderfully creepy for multiple reasons. I mean, you've got the isolation bit, you know, even though there's other people around, you're often kind of alone and by yourself in a public library setting. And in a private library setting, it's just you and the books, you know. There's also just that thought that libraries are this archaic SOT space because they've got all these old books that could just be filled with, you know, imagery in themselves, plus the information within it could have been read by people at another time who were connected to it in some way. And maybe they still haunt that book. And I mean, the sound of a library, you're meant to be quiet. It's a little creepy because (laughs) then you can hear everything, right? You know, you hear every little creak and every little piece. And then, you know, in characterization of libraries in general in literary, uh, they're often viewed as being haunted. And so it kind of Owns up to that and nothing against librarians. My best friend is a librarian. He would kill me if I said anything terrible, but they're kind of known to potentially be a little creepy themselves. So, you know, there's those pieces and architecture. And Marie's laughing because it's true, right? Like, you know, they have all this knowledge in their brains and they're naturally quiet people and what have you. And sometimes the patrons are a little creepy. And then you've got architecture. Clearly, you know, it could be very ornate and beautiful and echoey and large. And really, in the story for me, I really stuck with just the fact that there's this singular isolation. You're in there alone. There's the creepiness of the quietness of the sound. You should be alone, but maybe you're not. And she wasn't. (laughs) So (laughs) that's pretty much where we ended up with that one. But yeah, I was very fortunate to get the library very excited to get the library and it writes itself in some ways
0: i think my first experience with being terrified with a uh, somewhat haunted library was the first ghostbusters the beginning yeah. <laughs> did anybody else get the shit scared out of them by that or was it just me i Not think i was clearly. six years old <laughs>
1: There's a meme from, I don't even know what movie it is, but there's a woman who's haunting the library. It might be from Ghostbusters. Mm-hmm. And it says something like, when I die, I'm going to go back and haunt the library so I can finish all the books I never yeah. finished reading. And I think, that's me, you know? So it's a perfect space for a good haunting.
0: Yeah. Well, the setting of your story is in the late 1990s with Y2K as the backdrop and It's interesting because Y2K, despite being a major event that caused widespread panic, isn't often mentioned in pop or political culture nowadays. It was for a while, but it kind of fell off. So I was wondering, why do you think that is? And what inspired you to use Y2K as a backdrop for your story?
1: Well, I'm 40, (laughs) so So I I very much remember the Y2K (laughs) craziness. There you go. It's definitely a little bit partly just nostalgic for me. And Heather um, might have took a little chance on me because most of my works that I have written have either been scientific articles and what have you, or they've been poetry. So as far as short story, she took a leap on me and hoped I could do the good things that I could with it. And then I wanted to write something I knew for that reason. So won that. In in some ways, Y2K to me is... Technological horror, right? It was this massive fear. We really didn't understand fully the technologies that we had, kind of like what we're seeing now with artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. We don't really fully understand it. The people who created it didn't fully understand it. Clearly they didn't know Y2K either, because they all worried maybe everything would shut down. So it gave me sort of that arty uneasiness that people would be feeling at the time that I felt like I could work with. But on top of that, I wanted my primary character not to necessarily be a wealthy person. And Hill House is this giant house that might cost a lot of money to acquire, and I wanted a good reason to get her into that home. And so by having her be a computer programmer around the time of Y2K, in my story, the the house is owned by the town at the time, they sort of let her live there in exchange for these services. So it gave me a good reason to bring her to the home. But yeah, it's kind of a combination. And y'all remember the nostalgia. We all went out and bought all the cans (laughs) and panicked and the world was coming to an end and Mm -hmm. panic for horror. That's great. You know? Yeah.
0: I work with a guy that swears up and down. It sounds like a made up story to me, but he said his wife was really scared of the whole scenario. So on, uh, New Year's Eve, you remember those old TVs, like there wasn't iPhones or anything. There was those old antenna TVs that you could buy if you wanted to. He said he had one of those and he was outside the house by the breaker box and he waited for the ball to drop and then just threw the main breaker. (laughs) He swears if it's true, it's kind of funny. But at the same time, I think he would probably (laughs) be divorced. So I don't (laughs) think it really happened. (laughs) He's lucky he's still married. (laughs) That's all I can say about that one. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, so your uh, story delves into some dark themes, including the destructive nature of obsession. And I was curious to know if you're a fan of true crime media. And if so, was your story inspired by any specific, sorted true events?
1: It is and it isn't some of it's personal experience. I've dealt with some obsessive individuals myself. I find that as people, even if we don't get to the point of obsession like you would see in my story or that you would see in true crime stories, we can all be a little obsessive about something. Mm -hmm. I find that in a weird way, love and obsession kind of go together. In my experience, there's a little bit of Moments that we have where we take things too far because we care so much. And so I really like that kind of idea. I will say I am a big fan of true crime, which sounds absolutely terrible to say, (laughs) but I find it pretty fascinating. You know, it shows us the complexities of human behavior, how small, seemingly insignificant events in our lives might lead to bigger, stranger, and unfortunately more terrible outcomes. I think that engaging in true crime content is actually something that can also increase our awareness of personal safety issues and, you know, how we treat things in the world and what kind of kindness we might put out in the world because of the negative things that happen that we've seen in true crime. And so for this reason, I enjoy true crime, but because I also recognize the sensitivities of such events and the fact that people are personally impacted in terrible ways by what happens out there. I don't necessarily specifically tie it to specific stories. However, I will say the reason that nightshade ended up in my story was as I was thinking about, you know, what I wanted to happen and what to occur. I remembered a story back in twenty fifteen, true crime story, where a nephew had killed his uncle and injured his aunt through not shade poisoning after reading some Agatha Christie novels. <laughs> and it ended up supposedly being that they weren't the target and yada, 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 yada. But also was just drawn to the fact that Belladonna would be a very dark topic. Fits into kind of my weird aesthetic, I suppose. <laughs> so, But you won't see that one necessarily used in true crime stories very much because it's so easy to detect. But then there was a fire and we won't get into that because I won't we'll ruin the story.
0: Uh, heather marie true crime love it love it
2: i don't love it true crime is much more actually scary to me than anything supernatural Uh like i can read ghosts vampires monsters whatever all day long it's just fun but you start talking about real people doing horrible things to other people i get stressed out and anxious and like no i don't need that
0: yeah yeah I'm sure you guys probably know some people. I know so many people that are like horror movies, horror novels. Oh God, no, that just terrifies me, but they're true crime junkies. So like, why are you afraid of the, I know some people believe in uh, supernatural things like demons are real. Some people don't, but regardless, there's much more of a possibility of something like this happening to you than there is, you know, a demon crawling in through your ear and, and, uh.
4: It's funny because today, before this show, one of our closest friends is a blood spatter expert for the police department.
0: Do you know Dexter?
4: And yeah, (laughs) right? right. And my husband, his background is like physics mathematician guy. Mm -hmm. And she also teaches this trade and he helps her with the trigonometry behind it and all that. But today they were like, hey, can you come over to my crime lab and I need to build this horror scene and I need some artistic view behind it. I'm like, what? I get to go play with blood and create a murder scene. And uh, but time was running out. So I didn't get to go play today. And my husband is texting me photos of the murder scene that they just created so they can teach like the math behind the blood. Oh. But yeah, I'm definitely one of those that late at night when the kids are in bed, I'm like trying to fall asleep to true crime stories.
0: <laughs> just so this was for teaching purposes. It was like a mock-up, so to speak? Yeah,
4: they do mock-ups and I haven't gotten to go and they're like, you know, can you come? We're, she's building this new class and I was like, okay. And then I didn't get to go, but I was like, I love that stuff. I love getting like being involved in like learning and I'm always asking her questions and I do the same thing with like friends in like the medical field about that stuff and ask them all the nitty gritty questions. They're like, you ask the best questions.
0: Um. (laughs) Awesome. For a second there, I thought you were talking about contaminating a crime scene, (laughs) like like making it worse.
4: No, they get to go and build one. They get to go play pretend. It's so fun. I got you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Samantha Circling back to your book, unfortunately, the main character Charlotte transitions from one abusive relationship to another, which appears to happen purely by chance, even though she was attempting to take control of her life and break that pattern. So what was behind her path to abuse that she seemingly had no control over avoiding?
1: I think Charlotte is like a lot of women I know. Sometimes she's even me. I've been that person. And I think it's partly due to maybe cultural upbringing. Women are taught to fit the mold that they need to fit to be who other people want them to be. And I still fall into that often. And I think a lot of people find that unusual being in the work that I do and me being in leadership roles. They're like, you know, how could you fall into being a people pleaser? But it's more common, I think, than you would expect with women, and I think particularly women from certain cultural backgrounds. I'm from Alabama. We push ourselves into these neat little packages that fit other people, and we support lovers and people that we're interested in when we feel like we're getting love from them in ways that maybe they don't even necessarily deserve or ways that are putting us down and lifting them up. And so I kind of had her be that with her husband initially. She was the woman that he loved her support, but not her, right? And so when she started being more herself, he fell less in love with her and treated her worse and worse and worse, very narcissistic behavior. She gets out of that, but then when she meets Calvin, our character I won't go too far into, she's the only person he can speak to, you know? And so... I think there's a sense of responsibility in going back into that mold to be what other people need us to be, where she becomes kind of everything to Calvin. And out of a need for love, her heart's large, but it's needy. And unfortunately, that bites her. Mm.
0: If you ever want to see a really good psychological horror movie, maybe you've seen it, Speak No Evil. Do you know what I'm talking about?
1: Mm. i seen that one.
0: It's about people pleasing. This couple literally people pleases themselves their entire family to death (laughs) it's it's really dark
1: (laughs) yeah i actually think something like that is unfortunately realistic i found myself going down paths before where i'm like i just need to be what these people need me to be and it's taken me to places i don't want to be and didn't want to be and getting out of that was difficult and becoming myself was difficult but once i think people who are those people can do that And realize people will love them for their naturally weird
0: selves.
1: (laughs) It opens up a lot of doors, Mm -hmm. especially for creativity. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, as you've alluded to already, the story beautifully intertwines themes of love, obsession, and the supernatural. Is this blend something you commonly write, or was it an organic progression for this particular story? And how would you describe your overall literary aesthetic?
1: I have been told my literary aesthetic is melancholy, Melancholy. (laughs) (laughs) which I don't know if that's a wonderful thing or not. But it was not intentional for me to fall into those kind of themes. But I do find in my own poetry love and obsession and melancholy and supernatural do kind of blend. And I think some of that's just my natural interests in things like mythological characters. Sirens are a big part of kind of the things I've written about. I write about them a little bit differently, I think, than other people do. A lot of people write about them as these horrors that are luring men in. I write them as characters who've been put into a role they didn't want to be in, but they're kind of stuck to their fate. But I'm very fascinated with the dynamics of human relationships and that interplay between love and passion and when we slip into obsession. And of course, when you bring in supernatural, you have a lot more space to get kind of crazy with it. You get this fantastical backdrop where kind of... The boundaries of reality can be played with and you can kind of do things you might not could do in real world. And even though I do enjoy true crime, kind of like Heather said, I don't necessarily want the things I write to be too real. I like the realness in it. I like the emotional connection people get from the realness. But when it gets too real, sometimes that actually becomes more uncomfortable. So I like that supernatural element for that reason. But my overall aesthetic. I like ordinary and extraordinary fusions. I like the idea that there are things beyond our world. I'm a fan of the dark. I think there's light and dark and there's beauty in darkness. So yeah, I would say in general I would find myself to be drawn to those themes. An obsession, I just find absolutely fascinating because, again, we all have a little obsession about something in our lives. It's when we take it too far and there are people who take it too far, you know, and that's kind of a cool concept to, I think, evaluate. Mm.
0: Well, to kind of piggyback off that, the tragic ending of your story evokes a mix of a lot of emotions, <laughs> particularly Due to the shame and regret experienced by the character who actually turns out to be the antagonist. So why why do you think stories that leave readers feeling a sense of loss and pain are so impactful and resonant? I mean, I guess that's kind of a goofy question. We know why they're impactful and resonant, (laughs) but keeps them coming back for more. Is it some sort of masochism or I mean... <laughs> no, because well, it, it's it's
1: I'm, I'm over here laughing because uh I had some family members read this story before it was published, mm-hmm. and one of them in particular was devastated and absolutely. <laughs> Did you angry. feel good about it?
0: Did you derive a tiny bit of pleasure?
1: <laughs> well, because of the person <laughs> and who it was, maybe a tiny bit, but <laughs> I did feel kind of terrible, but they kept being like, no, this needed to turn out to be this amazing love story. And this is not what I wanted. But then I was like, well, did you think it was a good story? And they were like, yeah, it was. And I'll think about it a lot. And I think tragic endings really connect us to that raw, unfiltered nature of what life is, that human experience We see so many idealized, perfect, happy ending. I mean, most of us here are elder millennials or Generation X kind of folks, probably, zennials, whatever they want to call us these days. But we grew up with Disney princesses that were poor, ending up with a rich prince. And everything's a little too perfect. And now we have filters and we have people going on social media and only publishing the pretty parts of their lives. And we feel all these negative emotions, but we kind of feel them alone. And I think when we have these kind of tragic endings, it reminds us that not everything is going to work out perfect and not everything is always going to be okay. And we've experienced that and we connect to that. No, it might not be what we wanted <laughs> to happen. Uh, and, and we, I might have heard a lot in that earful I got about how could you do this? Um, But I think it's very authentic. I think it's a relatable reflection of what the world is, maybe not in the same way, but in the fact that a lot of the things that happen to us aren't going to be beautiful. And a lot of the pictures we paint in our heads of what our lives should look like. is not always what that picture actually ends up looking like on paper. Mm -hmm. And, I think it feels authentic for it not to always be that happy ending. Horror really lets us do that even a little bit more, which is probably a terrible thing, Mm -hmm. but good too. And maybe that's why people enjoy horror. You know, tragedy does happen. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I think in the original stage play, something was considered a comedy if it didn't end tragically with everybody dying. (laughs) Like that was just the way... That drama was played out, I guess, because it hit this primal place of struggle and torment that we all kind of evolve from.
1: Exactly. Things aren't always picket fences and perfect, they're just not.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, great story. Listeners at home, check it out. So, Marie, let me start off by saying I'm very jealous that I do not have <laughs> your backdrop. That is an amazing bookshelf you've got there.
4: Thank you.
0: Is that the entire wall? that I'm... It
4: is from floor to ceiling. I Jesus. just had it put in like going on a year. It's my office. And I was like, I want an office and I want a library. I need to be mm. surrounded by my favorite things. So thank you. It's my favorite seat in the house.
0: Mm -hmm. It's the best seat in the house, I would imagine. (laughs) Yeah.
4: Yeah. Thanks.
0: Well, as the author of the story entitled The House Takes, you've crafted a story that delves into extreme loss, grief, and the slow descent into madness. It features a unique plot twist and revolves around the time a woman named Victoria spends on the widow's walk of Hale House. And for those unfamiliar, could you explain what a widow's walk is and share what inspired you to make it a central focus for the setting of the story?
4: Well, my focus was because Heather gave me the widow's walk. (laughs) (laughs) Heather assigned it to me. (laughs) I think I had a few choices, if I remember correctly. She was like, who want these rooms? I was like, oh, man, I got to go for this widow's walk. So if you're not familiar, the history of a widow's walk is where East Coast homes, you're looking at your sailor to come home when they go out to sea and the woman would wait for their husband to come home. They would get the ocean view or the waterfront view and they would see them return from the seas. And a lot of times they wouldn't. And the woman would be a widow. So you can imagine that longing and the day spent up there by women and families waiting for their loved ones to come home from voyages. So that's where they got that name. And Heather was very kind to give me this one. I was like, how do you pass up a story? I have no idea what I was going to write at the time. But how do you pass that up with just that, like you were saying, oh, like it's such a lonely place. While you're absorbing the beauty, I think we can all relate to once you get caught in your own mind for long periods of time and you're sitting up there alone, even with all the beauty surrounding you, maybe I'm just talking for myself, but you can find dark places very quickly, right? When you're sitting in that. And so that's where I wanted to take my character, Victoria, in that story.
0: Gotcha. Well... The story focuses on victoria's slow descent into madness, and I wanted to know to what extent did Hale House contribute to attacking her in her vulnerable state? Was it the solitude in the large house, or was the house in some way feeding off of her and Can you expand on that a little bit
4: i'll try to expand without giving the ending away, but when you talk about hauntings and the spirit world, you always wonder when people die, do they leave their energies, right? And Hale House is so full of energies. Like, can you imagine the years of this house and all of the tragedy and life, even if it wasn't tragedy, living in it? So that's where I really tried to pull from is that there was a lot of tragedy and she was already really emotionally vulnerable and she was absorbing that energy and through her loneliness got darker and darker throughout that story.
0: Okay. Well, her husband, Eric, seemed to be dealing with his grief by immersing himself in work. Do you see Eric's immersion in work as a form of avoidance or a genuine attempt at coping? And how do you feel that this affects the reader's perception of his character?
4: You know, a little bit of both, right? Everyone deals with grief differently. Whether it's throwing themselves into work, whether it's crying for weeks at a time, everyone deals with grief differently. Some people talk it out and just want to talk, talk, talk. Some people want to close up and just be alone. And I think that that was a little bit of both for Eric in his grief is that he was coping in the best way he knew how, but in the long run, it was hurting his marriage and it was hurting Victoria's mental health even more with avoiding the situation that they were being faced with and not wanting to deal with it. and. We all want to deal with that differently. And even when two people love each other greatly, but can want to cope with something very opposite, right? Very different. And that can cause a lot of problems in itself if you don't come to an understanding with each other. So I wanted to just grab hold of that and hopefully really write that out when two people truly, genuinely love each other, but just can't come together and accept that both are grieving differently.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Well, this next question has to do with the woman on the widow's walk. And in the story, Victoria experiences visions of her. She's in a black dress. And if I remember correctly, she has black hair. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Black hair tied back in a bun and is described as having a sinister appearance and kind of how did you describe them? Spindly fingers. (laughs) Is that correct? Kind of like almost like an insect.
4: Right. Right. Like a spider.
0: Yeah. I don't know where. It's like I can see just this faint little image deep, deep inside my brain somewhere, some sort of archetype of this vision of this particular woman. Is there any literary or historical influences that might have inspired the imagery?
4: No, I wish there was something deeper. It was just more of like mourning and grief all rolled into this wretched widow, right? Like Mm. a woman who the life has been sucked out of her, (laughs) (laughs) literally sucked out of her, but also that taking of other innocence, that's so sinister, right? Of just like wanting to take everything good because they lost so much. And like what creepier than extra long fingers like a spite, like a black widow, like a spider um, uh, to me anyway. <laughs> yeah. But yeah.
0: Actually, I think I just figured it out. What was the latest conjuring? The woman who ended up being the Satanist? Have oh, you seen I haven't the... seen him. Oh, yeah. I think that's who it is. I'll have to uh, email you a picture of her. I think does that might be it. Does
4: she have extra long fingers?
0: She does. And <laughs> you get to see them because. Really? Yeah, because
1: (laughs) they copied you, Maria.
0: They go into her mind, the couple, and so they see her hands as she's performing this satanic ritual. So they see these long, spindly fingers with a dagger, whatever she's doing for this particular thing. And she has these long, spindly, pale fingers. Yeah.
3: With the
4: long nails. There's nothing Mm -hmm. like just that coming out of a wall, coming around. A door, you know, grabbing onto a door. There's nothing creepier than skeletal fingers coming at your face.
0: I was in here working on an episode and I had my headphones on and was like zeroed in. And I didn't realize it, but my wife had knocked on the door and I didn't hear. (laughs) her. But I saw movement out of the corner of my eye. And right as I looked up, she had these blood red fingernails that she had just gotten done. Her hand wrapped around the door like that. It scared the (laughs) shit out of me. (laughs) I just happened to look right at the right time. I was like, what are you doing? Stop that. (laughs) I wish
4: I could grow my nails out. I can't. But there's nothing better than those long, scary nails.
0: Oh, she had acrylic nails. Yeah. 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 No, they weren't her nails. She she had the blood red acrylic nails. (laughs) So. Well, there are many incidents where Victoria does or says things that make her seem irrational. And I guess to placate her, Eric handles these situations in a somewhat patronizing manner, although I think it's not intentional. It's just kind of the way it has to come out to make it work. So how do you think Eric's somewhat patronizing attitude impacts Victoria's mental state and the progression of her character throughout the story?
4: So, oh, that scared the crap out of me, by the way.
0: (laughs) I saw somebody come up behind Heather. I was like, what's <laughs> happening? Holy shit.
2: Yes, scared me too. <laughs> I
1: wanted to pull that quick, you know, scare factor you were talking about with your waffle. Yeah.
0: This is just like one of those movies where you're talking to somebody and yeah. somebody snakes in and exactly. slits their throat. And like, oh, it's done. Heather's gone. Yeah. Jesus.
1: <laughs> run, Heather, run. Oh.
0: I'm sorry. Go ahead, Marie. <laughs>
4: All scared us. Um, (laughs) True crime. True crime. crime. Right back to true crime. We're about to experience Heather in a true crime moment.
3: Um, Mm -hmm.
4: (laughs) (laughs) So, hopefully, I'm not giving too much away. Scream at me if I am. But, you know, with Eric and the way he handles the situations, so a lot of that was pulling from postpartum. You know, Victoria just has a baby. And I got to thank Heather again for giving me the year. So, a lot of this was on the year. I think I was one of the last people. Heather was like, do you have the year yet? Did you think of the year you want to write your story? I'm like, I don't know. Because if it was today, probably not would have had the same conversations. But then, you know, we were chatting and she's like 1950 something. And I was like, yes, (laughs) because in the fifties, right? Or even before we didn't know much about postpartum and what women went through. And, you know, having a baby and all of the emotions and feelings a woman experiences. So I try to pull, I don't want to say personally, but like, you know, I've had kids, you know the emotional roller coaster that is coming out of childbirth and all that. And I look back and like you think of like how, like, for so many years, we're not doing it anymore. I think we've come a long way. but back then most people would just brush off a woman from having emotions based off of her children. And they would be like, no, you got to suck up those emotions. You got to be the woman. You got to do everything. You got to clean. You got to get the chores. You got to take care of the children and the the man's going to go to work. And there was such divided roles in that. And I was really hoping to pull that out that he is very dismissive of her emotions, because he's not recognizing the supernatural thing that's going on, right, of the entity, the house, that is all of these energies that that is feeding on her. But also the fact that she just had a baby, and she is clearly dealing with postpartum. And I wanted to like bring those two, because Women who deal with that, it's already a very frightening situation. And you always feel like you're not good enough if you're not dealing with it well, like if you're not handling it well. Men, for one, I think it's really hard for them to try to recognize that. And it's really hard for them to try to understand something that is so dark when a woman actually experiences something like that. And so he is super dismissive. He is very patronizing. But he's also like, oh, honey, it's going to be okay. And most women probably want to punch him in the face (laughs) at this point. But back then, that would never happen.
0: Well, the ending is tragic. So... Well, the question is, is there some subtext with regard to the portrayal (laughs) of Victoria and Eric's relationship? But I think I think we just heard a lot of that. Oh, yeah. But my
4: poor husband walks on eggshells. He's like, (laughs) he's like, really, really? I'm like, it's not you. He always thinks (laughs) about me. It's not you.
0: (laughs) Well, but how about particularly in the context of dealing with times of crisis?
4: Am I pulling from real life? (laughs)
0: <laughs> no, 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 no. Just uh, something you're trying to project and kind of put out there for people to notice or key in on.
4: Yeah, I think when you don't recognize crisis, it just gets worse. And it's just going to keep spiraling. We talk so much these days about mental health and boundaries and like healthy boundaries and, you know, that kind of thing. And I think it's definitely pulled from lessons of, you know, so much that we're learning about mental health and acceptance and support when people are in a time of need. Love those tragic endings. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They really slap you in the face.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. What was the old, I think it was Socrates, the unexamined life is not worth living and what better way to examine it than through the experience of pain. Hmm. Well, great story. Heather, you are the closer. You are the author of the last story in the book entitled The Life and Death of Josiah Hale. And the story blends elements of horror, suspense, and psychological drama. So I was wondering, which of these elements do you find the most compelling to write and why?
2: Well, can I claim all of them? Because what I like to write is horror that involves suspense and really uh, psychological horror is a big thing for me. So I I like to get it all in there. I think horror should be emotional. That's really kind of my thing is to get into the emotions that people feel and how that affects how they respond to the things around them. So I like it all. I like to have suspense and psychological stuff wrapped up in my horror I think that's the best of all worlds and that's just how I like to do things It's what I like to read It's what I like to write so that's what I do
0: gotcha and I think I may have asked you this before in our previous interview but your draw to the gothic I guess gothic is focused on emotion
2: it does a lot yeah you know I grew up reading gothics it's what i'm used to it's what i was surrounded with even at a very young age because i read my grandma Anne's anthologies mostly which were written by the victorian horror writers and they were almost all gothic sort of tales so that's what i like that's what i'm used to that's what horror really is to me Mm. more so than anything gory or bloody that's just gross to me it's not horror gothic horror i think uses the supernatural to deal with things that happen in the natural world. And it does tend to be very emotional. It is sort of psychological. I think psychological horror is more of a thing that's come about in the last 60, 70 years. But gothic horror definitely had psychological elements to it. You had a lot of stories where you had unreliable narrators. You didn't know for sure if supernatural things were actually happening or if it was in the character's head. It's a dark Kind of storytelling, but it's also very beautiful and it gets into really deep, deep Mm. emotions, thoughts, feelings. And I think people need that. I think we deal with our own life and circumstances and thoughts and feelings through fiction. So, yeah,
0: well, the character of Josiah Hale is deeply flawed and very complex. Can you share your process for developing such a multifaceted character?
2: Josiah Hale came about after all the rest of the stories in the book were written. I knew that I was going to write the last story. It's the first story chronologically, but the last story on your tour through the house. So I wanted to wait till the very end so that I could pull in bits of the other stories and sort of wrap the whole thing up in my story. So I didn't even know for sure what was gonna happen with Josiah Hale in the beginning until I read what everybody else had written. And there's the little bits in the book. That's the tour guide taking you through the house. And when I started writing that, I wasn't sure who the tour guide was. And then when I got to the very last little section where the tour guide is talking, it clicked in my head who this person was what their relation was to Josiah Hale. And that was when Josiah himself sort of took shape in my head. So he is an incredibly self-centered person, very sort of shallow, superficial, cares much more about what other people think of him than of how he actually treats the people who care about him. He cares about his public image. He wants to be rich and famous and have the biggest, fanciest house. And he's just got this sort of long-suffering wife and child who is just a nuisance to him. He's kind of like a child in a man's body. He hasn't really grown up and he doesn't act in the ways that he should at all. I didn't have a lot of sympathy for him as I was writing the story, to tell you the truth. And, you know, the way the story ends up being... Part of what happens to him is not his fault. It's just the circumstances he found himself in. Part of what happens to him is his own fault because he had a chance to make things right and didn't do what he should have because he was only thinking of himself. And then his sort of punishment is like, it would have been better for him if he just died, right? If something horrible had happened and he was done, but his punishment is then that he has to live the rest of his long life out watching his children and his grandchildren go through horrible things and having these dreams and these visions of all these other things that are going to happen in this great fancy house he built over the next 200 years he has to live with that and so he's this very self-centered person and i'm hoping that maybe by the end he learned to not be so self-centered maybe he was touched by the horrors and the tragedies that he saw were going to happen to the other people that lived in his house over two centuries. But we don't know, because he doesn't come back out to tell us. You have to, I guess, decide in your own mind if you think he had any redemption.
0: Yeah. And speaking of his children, his son, Jeremiah, it seemed like the house had an intense desire for him, almost in some sort of biblical way, like akin to the story of Abraham and his son, Isaac. But In your story, it probably would have been a good idea for Josiah to follow the commands of the collective spirit of Hale House. So did the story end the way it did because of Josiah's disobedience or in spite of it?
2: I think horrible things would have happened in this house no matter what. I think Josiah had the opportunity to maybe make them less horrible, to save a few people along the way to do something good. But of course, he didn't take that opportunity. He messed things up. And his children, grandchildren, many people down the years, people that weren't even related to him that just happened to this house, they paid for that.
0: Mm-hmm. When you alluded to her Earlier, his wife Amelia has severe misgivings about living in the house, but remains quiet due to her submissive role, which was common to the time period, and she ultimately devolves into a shell of a human being. And Josiah and his son also suffer as a result of living in the house, but none as extreme as Amelia. So how did her inherently forced submissive role influence her reaction to living in the house?
2: Well, you know, I think we've actually talked quite a bit in this interview with all of us ladies about women's psychological mental issues because of the role that they've been placed in in society for so long and of course it's better now but it's still not always great and I think as female writers that that shows up in our work Mm -hmm. a lot and I don't know if you remember this but the last time we did an interview you asked me about the character of Suzanne in my book Knock Knock and she's this kind of wife who's very unhappy in her life. And she's kind of stuck in this loveless marriage that she doesn't want to be in. And I told you then that I wrote myself into her. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of me and her. And since then, things have changed. (laughs) a lot. But we do, you know, as women, we write ourselves into our stories, and we deal with our own emotions through that. And a lot of my stories over the last couple of years have had these female characters who are burdened with this role they're supposed to play that they're not allowed to be themselves they're not allowed to express themselves they're not allowed to have opinions or passions or anything and amelia in this story is very much like that she's just come to the point where she knows it's not going to do her any good to argue or to voice what she thinks he's building this house she doesn't want it she doesn't care anything about it she wants to be in town near her family and her friends because she knows when she gets out here with him in this huge fancy house full of all this expensive furniture that she's going to be alone with just him and he's not going to pay attention to her. She's just stuck. And then, of course, that is what happens. They get out there. He's doing whatever, dealing with, I mean, partly he's dealing with supernatural stuff, but partly he's just busy making sure that his house is as fancy as he wants it. And she's just on her own. And I think women feel like that a lot. They feel kind of alone and abandoned. And so her psychological state is just right for what happens to her in this house. The sort of evil that's in the land and in the house sees a very easy victim in her and takes advantage of that. And she hasn't fought back against anything in so long that I don't think it even occurs to her to fight back against this sort of malevolence that's creeping into her life. And she just fades away in the midst of it.
0: Mm. Well, I guess for whoever wants to answer, or maybe all three of you can kind of give different answers, as far as the writing of the book, apart from the floor plan of Hail House, how did the authors collaborate to ensure continuity and a cohesive atmosphere throughout the anthology, or was such a collaboration even necessary?
1: Well, I'm going to start first because I want to shout out to Heather, who will probably not shout out to herself, (laughs) at the fact that she did a great job in the editing process Mm -hmm. of really coming back to us. We started before then, and we'll talk about that. But when it came down to the editing process to say, you know what, your story really could use this element in it, and that ties us to this story. What if you had a charred book, you know, which was part of story over here? She also created a fantastic Facebook group for us where we had a lot of conversations and we communicated amongst each other through dms and what have you you know to kind of gain some perspective. but I really want to say that in that editing process, she did such a good job of ensuring that we had that thread that tied us all together, not just in her closing story but in our stories themselves that they projected that connection to the home, but also to the people who had been in it before and come after, which I think was great. So
4: awesome. Yeah. I'll shut up. Good job, Heather. Uh,
3: You're welcome. (laughs) Thank you.
0: (laughs) Second, that emotion by uh, Marie, I'm assuming.
4: Definitely. And I very much like that type of process, right? Where you just have this person like Heather She's putting together a passion project and she really brings it together. She wove it. She did some magic with the way she weaved everybody together. And also, even the maps, you could walk through the house visually while you're writing your story. All of that was just super helpful in the collaboration of the whole book. And uh, it was just such a great process.
0: Awesome. Well, Marie... I am a big fan of dystopian fiction. Can you tell me a little bit about your Fractured series?
4: Oh, yeah. Well, if you like post-apocalypse and zombies, the Fractured (laughs) series was one of my earlier series that I started. It takes place out here in Los Angeles, and there's something creating zombies, and it's about people getting through L.A., and coming together. And you've got your good guys, you've got your bad guys, the police and military trying to seize control, and a group of people coming together. I just finished the last book of the series a year ago, I think, book four. And then I have another zombie series called The Colony that I wrote years ago. But that was like a short story before I started writing books. And I just announced that I'm going to take all of those short stories and re-release it as a novel coming out next year. So,
0: Nice. All right. Well, Samantha, you are a poet as well as a writer of prose. Can you tell me about your collection of poetry entitled Sadness of the Siren?
1: Yeah, poetry is definitely my primary jam. It's something that I deeply love. And Sadness of the Siren was actually my first non-scientific published work. So it was something that I don't know that I thought I could do. I think those themes that Heather was talking about with women fitting into certain realms, I don't know that I thought I could do creative writing. I don't know that I believed that I could. And I'd put some out on social media and actually had a publishing company reach out to me and say, we want to publish some of your poetry. And initially they were asking to publish them that I had just put out there into the world. And I said, no, you know what, let me put some things together, see what you guys think of this. But I really want to focus more on some things that were important to me. There is love. There is obsession. Imagine that. (laughs) There's definitely melancholy. There's hope in all of the poetry. And a lot of it is through the lens of mythology or gods and monsters and creatures. And a lot of that comes from really a profound interest in those timeless narratives that, again, look at human condition in these fantastical settings so you can do things you wouldn't do otherwise. But Sirens in particular have been something that is very close to me, partly due to that being a nickname of mine because of voice work I used to do in my 20s. But Again, my interpretation deviates a little bit from traditional. They're not necessarily these evil temptresses; They are tragic figures who have really been forced into a fate that they don't want to be in. Mm. And, you know, they can't love, right? Because any man they draw in will will inevitably die. Mm. And so it's a lot of how the world looks at people, how people's situations are viewed by others, and the fact that we might be perceived as monsters, When the monsters aren't always us. But empathy is a big thing that I like to look at in my own work. And it's something I think that is so important to remember that even the bad guys have feelings too. (laughs) (laughs) So a lot of my poetry is connected to that. It really aligns with those thoughts of fate and consequences of societal expectations and looking at a different view looking from a different perspective. But poetry again, my jam. I was really thrilled. Jonathan Mayberry, I am name-dropping, which is terrible, but Jonathan (laughs) Mayberry was willing to write the foreword for it. And he said something that I thought, one, I thought it was so kind because it was about my writing, but really it was more that I loved it because it's really true of poetry. And he said poets and poems are magic because essentially they're the shortest story you can possibly write. And every time you read them or someone else reads them, they might get a different emotion from it. Kind of like Heather with Gothic. I think that's one reason I love poetry so much. It's all tied so much to emotion and how we feel and how we feel as humans is how we connect.
0: Well, based on what I read on your website, could you expand a little bit on what you do in the realm of voice art, education, and research, as much as you're comfortable with.
1: Sure. So I got back into voice work. I did voice work in my late teens and early 20s when I was still very involved in theater. I did a lot of theater at that time. And Got picked up to do commercials and that sort of stuff. I was a hold button voice for a while. You know, your call is very important to us. Oh I was my that god, person. do it again! Um, <laughs> <laughs> please hang on the line. Uh, I used to do it to family when they would call me just to be a jerk. But um,
0: you could I did have been a lot Siri. Of that
1: stuff. <laughs> you might have heard me and been really annoyed by my voice at some point, in time or another. But. Actually, I had four children and got very involved in life. I am a person who has a very dutiful personality. I believe in taking care of the things that we are responsible for and have duty to, and I let those things take over my life, so I tend to be a little bit of a workaholic. And I did not realize that across that span of adulthood and responsibility, I sort of lost myself until... A boss of mine said, what's your hobby? And I didn't have one. (laughs) And she essentially said, you know, all work, no play is not a good thing. And you really need to find space for yourself again. And I took it to heart. I went home and cried. Mm. I mean, I bawled my eyes out, as we would say, back home and started investigating. What did I have time to do? I couldn't do theater again. Theater takes too much time, you know. What did I have time to do? And my initial outreach was the idea that I would create a Facebook page. I would block every person I possibly knew could ever know in real life. And I would only befriend people who had interests that were similar to mine. So I joined some literature groups and became pretty active in them. And in a token group, we were talking about our favorite passages from like The Hobbit and the Silmarillion and what have you. People were posting about it, and I thought, i might read my favorite. And so I did and posted it, and people were like, wow, I really want you to read this other passage. And so I read that passage, and, oh, I want you to read this passage. And eventually it became, I think, so wonderfully annoying to the moderators that they were like, you need your own page for this. So I did. I created what I called my reading corner and started doing, as a hobby, narrations by request. And I did that for a while and got picked up then into some character voice work and was Cthulhu Kathy for the Eldritch <laughs> Defense Force, which was a comedy group, a Lovecraftian comedy group, which should not go in the same sentence, but does, and was pretty fabulous. I got to play a very seductive creature called <laughs> Cthulhu Kathy, who was luring you to the dark side. And... Slowly got picked up to do some more professional work. I do professional narrations now, and there is some of that on the website I'll share with you, and it kind of became its own thing. I have worked really hard to keep it still my hobby for the most part, because I want it to be a thing that I always find that I can be myself in. I don't turn it into a work thing. I don't make it into... Something that takes over my life in a new way because, again, I have the personality to be a workaholic and I'll lose the fun that I have in it. And you asked about something else. Oh, education and research. I am a professor by trade. So that is what I do. I work in higher education. I teach. I do research. And I'm an administrator. I never expected to work in higher education. I went out there and worked in my profession and found some things I didn't love. Found some things that I found frustrating that needed fixed at a very root level. And said, the only way I know how to do that is to take my degrees and put them to good use. So I came back and started teaching. And I'm very proud that in my own field, I've graduated over 100 doctors who are out there hopefully doing a lot better job about some of those things that were very frustrating in the field. So I love it. It's a place where I get to be constantly immersed in people much younger than I am. And I used to feel much like a student and I got mistaken for a student often (laughs) until a few years ago and somewhere I crossed that bridge. (laughs) Now they don't get my jokes anymore. Uh. And, you know, people ask me for directions and that's a bad idea. No one should be asking (laughs) me for directions. But yeah, I keep them very separate to a certain extent, but they all inform one another, all those aspects of my life.
0: Well, Heather... Can you tell us a little bit about Parlor Ghost Press?
2: Yes. When I first had the idea that I wanted to do this anthology, I also decided go big or go home. I would make my own press and publish it. I did talk a little bit with another publisher about sort of being the editor for their anthologies, but then it didn't work out. They didn't think there would be enough money in it. So that didn't happen, and I just okay, I'll do it myself. Spent about a week coming up with a name that I liked, and Parlor Ghost is just so me because I am such a lover of old Victorian horror, and every good Victorian haunted house had a ghost in the parlor, so Mm -hmm. obviously. But then an interesting thing happened because, as I said, in the midst of doing this book, which was going to be the first book for Parlor Ghost Press... Josh and I, who just scared us all to death by walking
3: past. Um, (laughs) uh, I saw
0: saw tattoos just coming straight at you. It's like, oh my God.
2: So, So, you know, we had known each other for quite a while online, just as friends, as bookish people. And then there came a point when we started becoming more than friends and he had his own kind of small publishing house, Watertower Hill Publishing. And, you know, we talked about what we were doing. I'm doing this, he's doing that. And he knows a lot more about the business and the publishing aspect of all this than I ever will. And so I was like, hey, (laughs) I don't suppose you want to help me with this, which of course he did. And he was great. And so we decided that Parlor Ghost Press would be the horror specific imprint of Water Tower Hill Publishing, because horror is my main thing. It's what I do. It's what I love. It's the community I'm a part of. But we wanted to kind of combine what we were doing. So that's what we've done. So Parlor Ghost Press is my baby, but it's also kind of underneath the lovely covering of Water Tower Hill Publishing. And it was originally just going to be a press to publish horror anthologies. But now, because Water Tower Hill is accepting all kinds of submissions for novels and things, the ones that are horror are going to go under Polar Ghost Press. So it's been a great advantage sort of joining these things together. It's helped us both expand from what we wanted to do to begin with. And I have to put it out there that the book, the actual physical book, House of Haunts, is a gorgeous, gorgeous thing. And that was one of the things that was so important to me when I started was I don't want... (laughs) I don't want to sound mean, but a lot of indie books don't look great. They're not (laughs) done terribly well. And I did not want that. I wanted to put out quality products from the beginning. And that is where Josh just absolutely shines because I can give him the vaguest idea and he just takes it and makes it this actual beautiful thing. So all of the... The formatting in the book, all of the, you know, the pictures at the beginning of each story, the architectural drawings, everything that makes the actual physical book so gorgeous. Even he was not the cover artist, but he had a big hand in how the cover, especially the back and, and the inner flaps on the special edition were designed. He likes to do lots of research on how things should be done professionally and make things look Great, which is great because I want things to look great. I just don't always know how to do that, but he does. And he took my ideas and made this fantastic thing. So when we joined together as people, we also joined together as a business partnership. And I edit his books and he formats and makes mine pretty. And together we're doing some really cool things. And hopefully we'll do many more going forward.
0: Power couple. Boom. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, people keep saying that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Heather and Samantha, I know a lot about what you guys do outside of writing, but what is the life of Marie Lanza like outside of writing?
4: <laughs> Besides being a busy mama of two babies, I work do a lot of writing. If I'm not writing my own stuff, I am also a ghostwriter, various genres even some biography projects. I get to get my hands in film and television. And I love to work. I live and breathe getting to create. And Mm -hmm. um, I'm super fortunate to be able to do it like every hour of my day. Even my little one, even ballet, I'm working, right? I have my laptop Mm -hmm. open. I'm doing something. I feed off of it. You know, I could also do the boring stuff. I love the garden and... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> A vegetable gardener. I sit in my yard.
0: <laughs> is that all you're growing? I,
4: I think about yeah, right. I'm in LA, so no, just go down to the market for that stuff. But yeah. you know, I'm just waiting for the apocalypse. Is what I'm doing. I'm trying to figure out how to how to get all my what's it called? Uh,
0: Do you have the underground bunker yet?
4: Exactly. That's what I'm trying. The to
0: nine out. years. Yeah. Okay.
4: Gotcha. Yeah, we've got the food ready. We've got everything. I'm always waiting for the apocalypse. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what are they called? Trying to live off the land. Um, uh, so. Homesteaders? Yes, yes. Yes, I'm to homesteaders. I'm always watching YouTube videos and TikToks on how to do canning and things like that. Got to get ready for it. So,
3: <laughs> nice. no,
4: but uh, yeah, I stay busy, but I really do try to keep it around this, around creating great things. So.
0: All right. Mic drop. <laughs> well, ladies, it has been a pleasure talking with you.
1: Thanks Thanks you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.
0: So as we bring the show to a close, is there anything that each of you would like to plug or let your readers know about? Maybe start with Marie.
4: Sure. I'm on all the social medias, Marie Lanza, and I have all kinds of great things out there. Definitely go pick up House of Haunts. It's a beautiful book. And I have some stuff coming out soon that I'm super excited about, including rebranding and redoing the Colony series that I first started out with. So super excited to get that out there.
0: Awesome. Samantha?
1: Yeah. Yeah. All of the things that I have out there artistically are on samreadsandwrites.weebly.com, and it does have Weebly because I'm too cheap to pay for the removal of it, so <laughs> w-e-e-b-l-y.com. But essentially all of my voice work is on there. I have been very fortunate to have poetry in quite a few different places, including Weird Tales, which just makes my brain want to explode. And I've managed to get in there in the cosmic horror issue, no less. And I am a major fan of Lovecraft, as you can tell from the tentacles in my tattoo. <laughs> so... Yeah, everything is out there. I'm very excited about this particular anthology, The House of Haunts. And we've got some discussions that I won't say anything about because I'm not sure if I should or not. I'm looking at Heather, but <laughs> uh, I'll let her reveal anything about potential future anthologies. But I'm on mostly Facebook because I'm apparently old, according to my children. So <laughs> Sam's Reading Corner, you can find my narrations and what have you. And I'd be happy to connect with anyone who's interested.
0: Nice. Heather?
1: Okay. Well, obviously, we want to plug House of
2: Haunts, which you can get on Amazon. We're working to get it into independent bookstores as well, but we love to hate Amazon. It's there. We also have a special limited edition hardcover with dust jacket that is numbered and signed by me that you can order directly from us. And you can find me. I'm on Facebook because I'm also old. And Instagram (laughs) under heather doherty and i'm gonna spell that for you because nobody gets it right d-a-u-g-h-r-i-t-y i'm pretty sure i'm the only one on there so it's not hard to find me on facebook or instagram and i'm always posting about these books so it's not hard to find information about them house of haunts came out on october 13th i also want to plug that josh and i are re-releasing tales my grandmother told me the new edition comes out on november 30th it's all updated new cover new formatting three extra stories so that's my big thing right now but we are also going to have the sequel to house of hans which will come out next year on october 1st it is called hospital of hans 23 wards 23 ghosts 23 stories and we have a lot of the authors from house of haunts coming back some have switched out with new authors that we're still working on it. it's in the beginning stages i am however going to give myself more than six months to get this one done uh, a little bit more than six
3: months <laughs> but we've
2: got the cover and everything already my one request for the cover was that it be hospital wall green like that old sort of mint 70s nice. it's like, it's like Green meets mint green mm-hmm. meets seafoam green. That all the hospitals and schools for some reason were painted in like the 70s and 80s. So the covers that color that's going to be a big thing. So, but right now, House of Haunts makes a great Christmas present.
0: <laughs> yeah. All right. All sounds great. Listeners at home, all links are in the description. And Samantha, Marie, Heather, thank you again for joining me.
2: Thank you so much for having having us. Thank you for
0: having us. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday when I will be joined by a writer of folk horror straight from the Louisiana Bayou. So until then, stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time.
5: That's why I'm hanging on I'm still here hanging on your every word That's why I'm hanging on I'm still here hanging on your every word